Morning, BCC. Great to see you. Uh, my name is Pastor Nick, and uh, we're continuing this morning uh, in part three of a series that we're doing all about the cross of Jesus, all about the cross of Christ. Uh, I want to open with a story that takes us back to uh, 1972 to 1974 in America. Um, there was a president uh, in charge of the uh, United States at that time who was called President Nixon. Um, and his uh, sort of presidency was characterized by a big scandal known as Watergate. What happened in essence with the Watergate scandal uh, was that five uh, gentlemen who wanted to see Nixon do well and who wanted to discredit the other party, uh, the, uh, the Democratic Party, you have the Republicans and the Democrats, a bit like the Conservatives and the Labour here in the UK. Um, and this group of five guys sort of took it upon themselves within, within the culture that Nixon had created to uh, discredit the Democrat uh, Party. And so uh, they decided to go and wiretap uh, and place surveillance equipment in the headquarters of the, Demo the Democrats' uh, party's offices, eff effectively. Um, and it was in a building called uh, the Watergate Building. Uh, and uh, so one particular night, these five gents uh, broke into the building, uh, and they went upstairs and they started to do their work. Um, they were placing uh, sort of uh, stuff inside phones so that they could listen to conversations. Uh, they were kind of rooting through papers to try and find information that they could hold against the Democrats. Um, and then what happened was this, there was a security guard who was looking after the building and uh, he noticed as he was doing his rounds that there was a piece of tape over a door uh, that shouldn't have been there. Uh, you know how like when you shut a door it kind of clicks into position, doesn't it? There's a little metal bit that kind of spring-loaded and it kind of pops into place and it stops the door from moving. Well, he noticed that there was a piece of tape over this one particular door and he didn't think anything of it, but he took the tape off uh, he just thought it had been put there for moving something, I guess. And he carried on doing his rounds. Um, and, and when he got to the same spot later, he, he saw that the tape had been returned to wh where he'd stripped it off. And he realized that something fishy was going on. Uh, and so he called 911, as it is over there in the, in the US. And the police came out. And the police came into the building with him. And they went upstairs. And they found these five guys red-handed uh, doing their, their, you know, their, they were trying to, place a little receiver inside a phone, they were going through papers, they'd got some money on them, and the money that they'd got on them was, for some reason, they'd, one of them had a bunch of money, and it was in sequence, uh, and had been numbered, um, and it was a, it was a payment uh, to them, uh, and it was connected with uh, a funds that Nixon had started to get himself re-elected, and they were able to prove that this, this money was traced to this particular source. Uh, and so, of course, uh, the House of Representatives, which is a bit like the House of Parliament here in the UK, were up in arms about this because they thought it was completely inappropriate that Nixon was involved in uh, funding something where a, a group of people went to an opposing party and had put surveillance in and so on and so on and so on. So it was a real, real scandal. Um, but instead of uh, just kind of manning up to it and going, OK, I really, really did the wrong thing here, Nixon tried to cover it up. And he said, absolutely not. I would never do something like that, et cetera, et cetera. So the House of Representatives took it to the next level, uh, and they started proceedings. And in the hearings, they found, uh, they found out quite a few suspicious things, that things didn't add up. And one of the things that they found was that um, Nixon had put a wiretap. In other words, it was like a, a voice-activated microphone inside the Oval Office. Now, the Oval Office is a bit like you know, number 10 Downing Street. It's where, it's where the, uh, the American presidents run the country from. 
And people weren't entirely clear why he'd put a wiretap in his own office, but I think it was because he wanted to hear what was going on when he wasn't there. Um, but of course it worked against him because in this hearing, what they did was they said, well, you're going to now need to provide the, the, the tape recordings of what's been said in the run-up to all of this scandal with the Watergate building. Uh, and so the High Court judge decided, that, uh, you know, uh, Supreme Court justice over there, sorry, uh, decided to ask for the tapes under a thing called a subpoena, which is that they are legally obliged to hand them over. And so Nixon resisted this for a while, but when he did hand over the tapes, Sure enough, when they listened to them, there were conversations in there between Nixon and some of his staff about how they would get round the FBI's investigation of them and how they would stop it and how it would look bad. And, and so, in essence, Nixon found himself in the heart of a massive, massive scandal uh, in early 1970s America. Um, before he could be impeached, which is a, a process where you discredit a president because of being, being, being caught in some... Uh, gross scandal. Before he could be impeached, he actually resigned from the presidency uh, and kind of came out and said, well, I, I think I've done the wrong thing and the best thing for me to do is to go. And having kind of related that story, we've just recently had a not that, not that dissimilar situation in our own politics here in the UK where a, a prime minister has had to go because of, of a problem of a similar nature. Um, uh, it's very interesting, this, the sequence that that happened. There was a, a team of aides uh, that uh, helped uh, Nixon uh, in his journey and one of them was a guy called Charles Colson and Charles Colson was like the real hitman he was really serious he would he would organize bad stuff to happen to people and uh, he was the first person who got put into prison as a result of the Watergate scandal um, and somebody handed him a copy of uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and he ended up reading it and becoming a born-again Christian and it completely turned, turned his life around. And he started something called the Prison Fellowship, which is now an enormous ministry in the United States. And he's gone on to write 30 books, he's won awards for his Christian faith, all sorts of things. So his spell of doing the wrong thing and then being put in prison made him realize he'd done the wrong thing and it, turned his, it actually turned his life around. Um, Watergate is something that's really gone into our culture, into our Western culture particularly. I don't know about internationally, but Western culture, we would say that Watergate was a defining moment in the history of believing in people in authority. Uh, we would struggle now to have quite the same confidence in a, in a leader or a president or a prime minister directly because of Watergate. And in fact, the, uh, the, the, the language of Watergate, the gate bit on the end, which is just part of the, uh, the, the name of the, um, uh, the building, we've now appended gate onto anything where we think there's a scandal. Have you noticed that? Uh, so, um, you know, we, we even do use it in social settings as well. You know, like uh, if we've run out of biscuits in the house, I will complain to Chloe about biscuit gate. You know, uh, there's a, a big scandal that there are no biscuits. Um, but we have it in our political life here in the UK too. So, for instance, a few years ago, there was a, a thing called Plebgate. I don't know if you remember that, but there was some MP who uh, told a policeman who was using the wrong exit from Downing Street that he was a pleb. Uh, and he should use a much lower form of exit, you know, that was more suiting to his station. And this got into the press, and the press were rightly very upset on this policeman's behalf. And the MP then ended up resigning over it. So gate has become, some, because of the name Watergate, so people have just taken gate off the end and added it to scandals. It's that big a deal. Um, it's a great, you know, it's a, it's a part of our collective history and consciousness. Um, and the reason I'm sharing the story about Watergate uh, is because Watergate represents something of where I'm headed with my message this morning, which is the idea of something called iniquity. Okay? 
My message is called Iniquity. Uh, Iniquity is just a fancy name for sin. I had this horrible panic on that if I just labeled the message sin, you'd all stay away this Sunday. Because uh, uh, we all know about sin and we've heard about it a lot. But I thought, no, let's actually go right into iniquity. What is iniquity? Iniquity is really bad stuff, really bad actions, really malevolent intent, uh, real nastiness from one person to another. It's wickedness. Uh, it's scandal. It's, uh, you know, really poor aspects to our behavior uh, or our speech that really, really let us down. That's what iniquity is. Let's get into um, our, the third part of our message today uh, with that story uh, in mind. As I say, we're in part three of our series on the cross. And in the first week, do you remember I urged you to think of that feeling of what it's like to try and clamber onto a roundabout at the playground when you're a kid, and then the the crazy kid spins it really fast, and then you try and get to the center, and how hard that can feel sometimes? What I want us to do in this series is to get to the center of the Christian faith, and that can sometimes take effort and, and casting things aside and distractions aside, but the center of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ crucified on a cross. That's the center of our faith. That's what we believe by faith is the real core message uh, of Christianity. Um, And we looked at what the guys uh, in Nicaea came up with in 325 and then in Constantinople in 381, where they summarized all of Jesus' ministry in 15 words. And these 15 words were, for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. And so for all of those church leaders some 300-odd years after Jesus' ministry to boil down everything about Jesus to just 15 words tells you they had got right to the core point. And the core point for them was Jesus went to his death on a cross under a Roman ruler called Pontius Pilate and he died and he suffered, you know, he suffered and he died and was buried. Um, and we, we noticed how there was nothing else included in that statement. No prayer, no, no Sermon on the Mount, no healings, um, you know, no walking on water, uh, none of that stuff. It was all just about Jesus and his death. We then also looked uh, at the following week, we looked at the idea of scandal, that the cross is a t- complete and utter scandal. We looked at the hideousness of it and how it's designed to be specifically degrading to people. In fact, it sits outside what God would accept as any kind of punishment. We looked in Deuteronomy, it said how Deuteronomy says cursed is someone who hangs on a tree. God himself curses crucifixion. Uh, and we noted that. And then we got into the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and I trod on your toes a bit, didn't I? And I suggested, well, maybe the wheat, the wheat isn't just us, and the weeds are those bad guys over there. Maybe, maybe, the, you know, maybe the weeds are us as well. Maybe we have the capacity for bad bound up in our roots. Uh, and that we're, that, you know, it's all together in there, and that we have to fight that in ourselves, and we have to be very careful of the, our tendency to do the wrong thing. Uh, so that brings us kind of up to speed, and we're into uh, iniquity itself this morning, um, and I just want to explain what sin or iniquity looks like and feels like and what it's all about. Um, basically, we all have the capacity to do the wrong thing, don't we? All of us. Uh, We just have to look at our thought life over the last 48 hours to realize that it's not all sweetness and light, is it? And we have to bounce things out of our thought life quite often as Christians. Sin is both a verb, which means it's something we do and perform, uh, often against our better nature, but we end up doing, but it's also a dominion. It's like a rule under which we exist and of which we are agents, We are active agents in the dominion of something that Paul describes in his letters as sin. 
In fact, he describes sin, the sin, uh, sin and the law as two kind of powers that work against us um, and that they hold us in thrall and we're, we're slaves to them, uh, to those two powers. Um, sin is also like a contagion. Uh, I mean, we're very familiar with, with contagious in, uh, infections right at the moment, having just kind of you know, gone through a pandemic and slowly coming out the other side, although I think COVID is, is around just as much as it was before. Um, but it's something that spreads. Sin is something that uh, it spreads this kind of deep interior spiritual dislocation um, from God. Uh, and it disconnects us from God and it spreads from generation to generation, from person to person. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's contagious. It's, it's something that's on the inside of us. Um, no human being has had the power ever to break the grip of sin on their own without the outside, or divine, without the outside and divine help of God. None of us is able to break sin by ourselves. I'm sure some of us, many of us even, have tried to do that. We've tried to, to kind of to have a go. Maybe perhaps, you know, perhaps if, if you're someone that's come to Christ a little bit later in life, maybe, you know, maybe not as a child or as a teenager, but perhaps you know, I came to Christ at the age of 32, and I know that my 20s were characterized by efforts to do better and not, you know, not succumb to some of the things I didn't want to see happening in my life. But what we realize with sin is that something has to happen from God's side of, of the equation in order for things to get fixed. This is not something we can solve on our own. And we know from the story of Adam and Eve in the garden uh, that there was a rebellion that went on that's like the picture of how we disconnected ourselves from God. Uh, God and Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship, didn't they? Uh, they wandered around together in the garden and, and were fully connected and, and fully linked and, and of one mind and spirit. And then uh, Adam and Eve sinned. And that got broken, and then they start, you know, they, they sort of started to hide in the garden and try and they were disconnected from God. Um, and they realized that there was a difference between them and God, and, and there was a, a, a chasm opened up between them. Uh, and the story about Adam and Eve uh, describes our rebellion against God. And all of us, even Christians today, all of us in the world are connected to that rebellion in our nature. It's in our being, it's in our DNA spiritually. Uh, and uh, all people everywhere, no matter when they lived or where they lived, uh, uh, struggle with this. They struggle with the power of sin. They do. Um, it's a sad thing to say, but sin is the one universal solidarity that all human beings share. That's a bit disappointing, actually, isn't it? To realize that that is the, you know, that is the <laughs> kind of the one thing that marks out every single person on the planet together is that we all have the capacity to do the wrong thing. Another thing to say about sin is that it's always against God. It always goes against God um, and it always fights God's will. It's something that's like an alien power uh, that can't be driven out by people from the inside. It has to be driven out by God. And yet it's something for which we have responsibility. It might be an alien power. We might be slaves to it, but we have responsibility for it. And so that, what that means is that when we've sinned, we carry guilt with us. We, the, we carry the guilt of responsibility for having done the wrong thing uh, and that we know that we've done the wrong thing. Now, what happens with the cross of Christ is that in God's eyes, crucifixion of his son is the only thing which fixes sin properly. It's the only thing that's acceptable to God in order to, uh, to sort the problem out. 
Uh, and and that the, you know, the, uh, the awfulness of the, of the crucifixion is somehow something that matches the awfulness of our sin. That was something we touched on in our scandal message, wasn't it? That there was, um, with the scandal of the cross, what we know about that is that Jesus has the moral authority to stand and face, next, you know, face to face against every single very depraved and horrible thing that human beings have ever come up with because he went to the cross. He knows what that's like. And it gives him the moral authority to stand there and say, I know what that's like and I can deal with it. As I said in the, service, in the first service, you know, Jesus is not just sitting there knitting. He's really not. He is doing something very, very deep and pained and anguished because it matches the kinds of things that we do ourselves uh, that cause other people and ourselves anguish. The, the video we saw at the start of the service is called Iniquity, uh, which means sin, and it's from a very famous passage in, in, in one of the books of the Bible. Does anyone know where that comes from? Where does it come from? Just shout out the book of the Bible you think it might be. Yeah, I, I, Isaiah, and anyone want to go for chapter? Isaiah 53, I think I heard someone say. Very good if you said that. That is absolutely right. It's Isaiah 53. And let me just read from verses 4 to 6. Now, Isaiah, read, he writes this 750 years before Jesus comes along. See, and when you read this, you kind of think to yourself, whoa, this, this is so like a description of Jesus. How did he do that? Well, he did it by the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired his words as he wrote them. Let me read what it says to you. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, punish, the punishment uh, that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds amazingly like a description of Jesus, doesn't it? It really does, like way, way ahead of time. Now, I'm not sure who Isaiah specifically was writing about there, but I think he was talking about someone that he envisaged that would come along and have the ability to deal with our sin or to deal with something major. Um, and I think the Holy Spirit used his words and placed them there. And we know for, for his, a matter of historical and archaeological record that those words definitely appeared before Jesus was born. Uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's the Isaiah scroll, which is made in, I think it's made of copper or, or brass or something, and it's had, it has the whole of Isaiah etched on it. Um, and it, it, re it reflects Isaiah 53, and that's from about 200 years before Jesus. And that was a long time after Isaiah wrote it. So we know time-wise, that Isaiah was right, right on with his, with his prophetic writing. But what Isaiah is saying is that there's a punishment for sin and iniquity that gets put onto someone with a purpose. Have you noticed in Isaiah there it says, uh, it, tells, it says the what as well as the why. So the what is pain, suffering, punishment, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, at wounds, etc. That, that, that's a very great, very good description of what it's like to be crucified. So we get the what, but we also get the why. The why is presented in Isaiah 2. It's for our transgressions. It's because of or for our iniquities. There's a purpose in Jesus doing what he did as he goes to the cross. And if we jump into the New Testament and we go to 
probably the most famous part of the New Testament where it describes the good news, the good news of Jesus being that because Jesus went to the cross, we are, we are somehow let off of our sins or our sins aren't counted against us anymore. Um, we find that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, he writes from verses, I'll start from verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul is giving uh, the kind of the core information that the church needed to hear about the good news of Jesus. And he boils it down, a little bit like the Nicene Creed guys did, he boils it down to a core thing, which is that Jesus died, and he died for our sins. In other words, what I'm saying is that the crucifixion, the cross of Christ, has something incredibly important in it, where Jesus uh, is sent as the Son of God to become something that allows us to have our sins taken away from us. Our sins get removed by God's activity in asking Jesus to go to the cross, and Jesus somehow, in taking all of that on his, in his body, somehow that deals with our sin. It somehow takes our sins away. So, and that happens all the time. It's continuous. So those things that you've struggled with this week in your thought life, that's, that thing that you said at the water cooler to somebody in the office or in, in the college that you regret, or, or that, that little thing that you did in the traffic jam where you were just a little bit angry with that person or whatever, all of those things that are wrong things, they get dealt with by this cosmic event of Jesus being crucified on a cross. And not just small stuff as well, really, really big and horrible stuff like president, you know, lying type stuff, people being murdered type stuff. Jesus is able to deal with that in going to the cross. It's the only thing that deals with our sin properly. All other things do not work. Jesus, take your place. All other names fade away because he is the one that can do that. Nobody else can. There is a chasm between us and God without Jesus, and we cannot get across it by ourselves. We just cannot. Um, I, was, I was wandering up, uh, was about a year ago, I think a few months back, I was wandering up to the NIA, uh, in, I think it was in my lunch break, and um, I saw these guys trying to jump across the canal. Uh, you know, that, you know the, the narrow bits that you have where the, the boat goes in and the, you, you shut the locks down and then the water slowly takes the boat down? Well, they were kind of toying with the idea of kind of leaping and running off and jumping onto the other side. I'm thinking, you're mad. You're not going to make that. That's a long distance. You know, I, I was just thinking, wow, why would you even attempt to do something that crazy? And that's a bit like us with trying to get to God. God is on the other side of the bank, and there is nothing other than the crossbeam of Jesus Christ crucified that is going to get across to him, that will get, uh, get us across to him. We are not going to be able to do that on our own. We need the help of the cross to bridge the chasm between us and the Lord. You cannot do it in your own strength. You will fall down. It's not going to work. And if we look through the lens of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament completely supports this idea that the purpose of Jesus in going to the cross was to deal with our sins. Let me just give you a, a quick whistle-stop tour of what the different writers say. Um, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 1, the angel appears to Joseph to talk about Mary's pregnancy, uh, doesn't he? The angel appears and he says to Joseph, uh, you need to call him Jesus because the, the, the name Jesus means uh, God saves. Uh, and it also... 
he then says, for he will save his people from their sins. Even in his name, his purpose is bound up in his name. Uh, And we hear that from the angel in Matthew 1. In Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus heals the paralytic who gets let down through the roof from his paralysis. And he does it for, there's two, two aspects to that. He does the healing that you see, and he does the forgiving that you don't see. And the healing that you see is like the proof and the evidence of the forgiveness that you can't see. And he does it, uh, and he says, um, he does it to demonstrate so that the Son of Man, uh, so, so that people can see, sorry, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to do what? To forgive sins. So we see it in Mark as well. We see it in Luke, Luke chapter 24, as we're getting towards the end of his gospel account. He says this, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name. John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sins of the world. You know that verse, don't you? Absolutely. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost uh, and after the outpouring of the Spirit, the people are cut to the heart about the fact that he says, well, you put him on the cross and they say, what, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, of your sins. Hebrews chapter 1, Christ made purification for sins, and he does it by going to the cross. Uh, first letter t- uh, of Peter, it says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. One John, the first letter of John, uh, the evangelist, he says this, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Revelation chapter 1, to him who has freed us from our sins, describing Jesus in heaven. The Bible is absolutely pointing to a picture which is that God God has sent Jesus on the cross and Jesus on the cross is the way, the only way, to have our sins dealt with. And that is the message of the cross. That is the message of the cross. And that's why this is something that stands right at the centre of that swirling roundabout of all the different ideas we find in our society. We have to get there and we have to cling on to it and we have to stay there because it is so important. I want to read to you a quotation. Uh, you should find this re- reproduced in full in your version uh, event for today uh, on your Bible app, hopefully, uh, that that will be there. It's from a writer called John Stott who wrote an, a, an incredible book called The Cross of Christ. And um, it's a great and it's a deep quotation. Let me take you through what it says. Uh, he kind of hits the nail right on the head. He really gets uh, it right. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation... In other words, the ability to get to the other side of the canal where God is, is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself uh, where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's incredible. That's a beautiful statement, actually. He's got it he's wrapped it all up in such concise language it's great the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man and in one of our future sessions in this series on the cross we are going to actually go through all of the mechanics of what's called substitutionary atonement which is that God puts us at one with him by substituting his son into our place and that he takes the punishment that was due to us uh, instead of us. And I'll unpack that in a future message. I want to just explore a specific story about 
and iniquity that took place in the Bible today uh, because it gives us a specific insight into what sin feels like. Now, I can hear you thinking and feeling, Pastor Nick, you don't need to tell me what sin feels like. I, I know it all too well. I get that. But I think what happens, what would be helpful would be to hear it broken down in scriptural terms so that you see and feel and hear what it says in God's word about what happens when we get into sin. Because I think we need to know it, have it laid out in front of us, and then understand what the cross of Christ does to deal with it. Uh, it's a very, very helpful thing to hear that. Turn with me in Genesis, uh, to Genesis chapter 4 in your devices or on your Bibles from verse 1. And can I just point out to you, this Bible, okay, this is quite large because it's large font, but look, we're just, this, is, uh, this is the beginning here. Um, try not to tear the pages. Uh, where are we? This is the beginning of Genesis here. Uh, so, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and we're here, and look how much of the rest of the Bible is there, and we're straight into sin. We're straight into it. And so the Bible doesn't mince its words. It gets straight on with the essence of what it needs to come and do for us, which is to tell us the nature of sin, and then also tell us how we get out of it, which comes a little bit later on in the person of Jesus. Let me read from uh, Genesis chapter 4 uh, from verse 1. Um, Adam, uh, the man, was intimate with his wife Eve, that's Adam, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? I don't know, replied the president. I don't know what you're talking about, five men breaking into another building and planting a wiretap. <laughs> The Bible is so honest, isn't it? It's brutally, brutally honest. You read some passages like this, and sometimes you just quake in your shoes at how honest it is, don't you? You really do. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And here in verse 13 and 14 is the kind of key bit I want to look at. And this is where we get what, what it feels like to sin. In the, it's almost like an anatomy of sin here. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Let me just take you through... Uh, the things that Cain's mindset teaches us about sin. Just briefly, there's six of them, but they're very, very brief, okay? Number one, sin feels unbearable. When we have sinned, it's a weight upon us, and it's horrible. And we feel like, oh, that is just awful. Why have I done that? It's a horrible feeling to feel like we've sinned. Number two, we get driven away from what we were originally called to do. Um, if you notice there, it says, uh, Cain says to God, today you're driving me from the land. 
We get driven away from the stuff that we're supposed to be doing. We get displaced. Uh, and that means that we can't do the purposes that we were originally called to, to, to fulfill. Thirdly, we get cut off and hidden from God. Cain says, um, I will be hidden from your presence. It's an echo of what happens in the Garden of Eden, where, where Adam and Eve are cut off from God. We find that we can't rest. I will be a restless wanderer. I, you know, I'll just always not have peace. When you sin, you don't have peace. It makes you restless. Um, we can't settle. That, that word wanderer is, is interesting. I don't know if you've ever met people who sometimes just do this perpetual traveling thing. I, I, I certainly met a lot of those kinds of people in my 20s, and maybe that's the time when you do do, that, do do that anyway. But I think sometimes when you travel an awful lot, can I say that maybe you're trying to escape something on the inside? just putting it to you it's just a loose connection and it's not applicable to everybody but sometimes the perpetual travelers of this life are trying to run away from something that they're carrying on the inside of them that they can't deal with by traveling they need to deal with it by going to the cross of Jesus Christ and I would certainly say that was a pattern that was true in my life in my 20s I did a lot of traveling and I became a Christian and then suddenly that wanderlust seemed to just disappear I felt like I could settle and sixthly, we live in fear of retribution. When we do the wrong thing, we're always nervous and looking around the corner in case, in case some guy is going to come and get us for the thing that we've done wrong. Cain says it exactly how it is in just those two verses of, of Genesis 4, verse 13 and 14. Uh, now, what I want to say to you is that uh, Jesus fixes all six of those things in going to the cross on our behalf. He fixes everything by going to the cross for us. And that's the mystery of the crucifixion. Somehow, in a crucifixion, in nailing uh, a poor itinerant Jewish preacher to uh, some bits of wood in one of the world's most oppressive cultures 2,000 years ago, somehow that fixes what Cain went through. It somehow addresses and is the medicine for what Cain needs. It's his medicine that he needs spiritually. It solves the issue we all find ourselves with, with perpetually struggling with wrongdoing. Um, Jesus takes away our sins from us so that they are not unbearable anymore. I'm sure that all of you would put your hand up if I said to you, have you ever been to church, confessed a sin at the front, and then felt better afterwards? Yeah, I know I have, thousands of times. I've come to church and I've thought, oh Lord, I didn't mean to do that, and then I've laid it at the cross, I've, I've laid it down, and I know that Jesus has forgiven me. And it's allowed me to carry on, and I get strength to carry on, uh, and it doesn't feel as unbearable. Uh, because we're no longer driven away, but once we're forgiven, we can, we, we can stay where we are, we're then, we can go back to what we were originally called to do. We get drawn back into family, into our purpose, into our calling, because of the spiritual adoption that goes on. Um, we get reconnected to God, and we don't need any longer to try and hide. We're not trying to hide away. You know, if you've gone in front of Jesus, and you've felt that Jesus has forgiven you, then there's not an awful lot that other people can say to trump that is there and that means that you're then like okay with other people have you ever seen that link before when you're good with god it's not an awful lot that other people can judge you for uh, now they may need to judge you they may you may need to go through a process of justice or whatever but if you've had forgiveness from jesus that makes you right on the inside with god and that resets you and that's very powerful and as a result of that we get granted peace and rest we're not restless uh, and that we can be settled and be in one place. It's fine. We don't have to run away from the thing that's actually on the inside of us that we're trying to run away from. And we get fully forgiven and released from this requirement for, 
for justice, at least as far as God is concerned. Now, I'm not minimizing the need for justice. In fact, my message next week is all about justice uh, as it relates to the cross. But if we've been forgiven by God because of what Jesus does on the cross for us, then we're, we're a long way down the road from where we were. And like Charles Coulson did, he realized in prison that the forgiveness of Jesus was, in, was immense, and it then set him on a journey which then saw him being released and actually starting an incredible ministry and becoming somebody who was recognized for that. I'm going to ask the worship team if you'd just like to come and join me up on the platform. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, team. And would you all stand with me, please, BCC? We're just coming into the finish of our message. Um, I want to share with you a tweet that I saw back in April on Twitter um, from a pastor called Andrew Wilson. I think he's a pastor down in London. And he said something quite profound. And it sums up uh, what I'm trying to say in my message this morning to us all about sin. Listen to this really carefully, and you'll work out where he's going with this. He said this, Bad news. If we hide our sins, God doesn't. Okay? Bad news. If we hide our sins, God doesn't. What does that mean? It means that if we try and cover up, like Nixon did, actually what happens is eventually God exposes that. Eventually it comes out, doesn't it? Sin comes out. It does in the end. And God has a habit of bringing it out. So that's the bad news. Then, he tw- then in the second line of the tweet, he says this. Good news. If we don't hide our sins... God does. Now, that, I've, never, I've never heard it put like that before. In other words, if we're willing to confess our sins, if we're willing to acknowledge that we've done the wrong thing, if we're willing to be like David did when the prophet uh, Nathan came to him to say that you've sinned, and he went, ah, oh, I've sinned, and admits it, what, then God, what God then does is he then hides that for us. It, it's, he takes it off of us. One of the Psalms talks about sins being taken as far away from us as the east is from the west. In other words, our sins get removed from us. Let me just read that to you again. Bad news, if we hide our sins, God doesn't. Good news, if we don't hide our sins, God does. In other words, if we are just honest about our sins and we confess them, then God releases us from them. And then they are taken away from us. And we get strength and energy and life back and we can proceed as we were before. The cross of Jesus is the thing that achieves that. And it's the unique thing in the whole of history and among all humanity. There's nothing else does that. Nothing else at all will do that for our sin. And that's why I've devoted an entire message to iniquity or sin. Jesus going to the cross sorts our sin. He is the bridge from here to there. If God is on the opposite side of the canal and we want to try and jump across, we won't. We'll fall in. Jesus being on the cross is what gets us there. Amen? We're going to sing, and then we're going to respond a little bit more. Thanks, Kev. Thank you.